out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome to The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you for the next, I don't know, 40, 50 minutes. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the Brian Jonestown Massacre, because I caught up with the main man, Anton Newcomb, to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview, and um, after several minutes of casual chat, as you do, and um, yes, we could then get down to those exciting um, questions about the early musical influences, and this was Anton's reply. Anton, it's over to you. Well, you know, uh, my mom always liked music, and uh, I would sit around and watch sort of variety shows with my great-grandmother, and, you know, the stuff where they'd have, like, I don't know, they had, like, country ones, and they had all kinds of stuff in America. But um, <laughs> even Lawrence Welk, which is, like, big band style. And, but, uh, you know, so I started dabbling in my mom's records, you know, and then uh, when I got a little bit older, uh it was stealing all my older sister stuff, you know, with all the new wave and punk. Yes. Um, she was three years older than me. I was born in 67, so I kind of went from that really good, excellent record collection that everybody had to, um, you know, like I made the jump to post-punk pretty yes. quick. And did you, and did you during that time, I mean, sort of I can remember certain things, Listen to because my brother, my not my brother, my my parents were into really terrible country and western like Jim Reeves and sort of um, mm-hmm. Tammy Wynette. I'm not saying that Tammy's a terrible artist, but you know, they, it wasn't the kind of sort of country that I sort of grew to like a little bit later. It was kind of boxcar Willie and stuff like that. And and on Radio Two, there was like it was soft, you know, it was soft pop, so it was like Burt Backrack, who I have to say I quite liked. But then it was kind of watching Top of the Pops in the early '70s with people like mm-hmm. Slade and. Um, Sweet and people like even Gary Glitter, you know, that that and Alice Cooper's School Out had a sort of moment where you thought, God, School's Out, that's quite a radical song at the time, you know, when you were. Yeah, I, I, I never really liked mainstream rock, rock, you know, none of it. Not Alice Cooper, none, none of it. I never liked any of that stuff. <laughs> I mean, just, uh, if, you know, because when I was really little, they were still showing like the monkeys and all that stuff on TV, you know? So, and, and the, the tail end of all the psychedelic stuff that was tinged from the children's programs to anything else, you know? Um, yes. It was pretty, pretty good stuff. Um, and it was sort of hit the ground running. Well, it's interesting because I remember the monkeys, which we were excited by, and then there were the Beatles films, and there was also something called the Banana Splits. Sure. who we just thought was so rock and roll because it was just such a great song and um, it, <laughs> sound, it sounded like such a wacky thing to do. But to be honest, I didn't really get into punk because I was still quite young and I was, my brother was like seven years older than me and he was into that world of prog rock because he'd sort of... Yeah, just, and so he, yes, seen, um, America's a totally different situation because live music, um, besides the race thing, became associated with... with uh, Rebellion. So by 65, 66, right on Sunset Strip, it, it, you went from a culture where people that had ca- uh, coffee houses to watch bands. You get 12 year olds, and you would every single day watching bands or surf bands playing, you know, people doing this stuff, right? It went through Beatnik and on. And it, right into you couldn't see a group until you were 21 to drink. 
right live music unless you're at the state fair or something right on the fairgrounds and they would have somebody you know playing question mark in the mysterians or whoever it would be that would be a local whatever um anyway so that's where the whole music thing came came in with the uh, punk and new wave is a lot of the do-it-yourself stuff I think that yes. access to music it's really important more more so than the um, than the stylistic like oh you know because it was wide open yes basically yeah because because having done you know a huge amount of interviews with about you know especially the 80s indie bands the one thing yeah. in, the, in the UK was because in that early 80s we had you know Thatcher you obviously had Reagan there was a lot of sure. unemployment so a lot of people were just signing on because that was like a thing you did it didn't it didn't really have a bad status at that time it was almost like a career yeah. progression but it meant that people could be unemployed and get sort of job seekers allowance and the housing benefit and all that kind of stuff so they you know in that time they took the money took the drugs took lots of drink and sort of form bands. I mean, that's a slightly yeah. easy way to look at it. But there was a lot of bands who just formed because there wasn't much else to do. So that early 80s period, which is kind of post-punk as well, there were all these kind of little jingly jangly bands that started. And it was kind of like, you know, you had Simple Minds and U2. And then in 83, sure. you had bands like The Smiths. And then for five years, you really had that that sort of indie kind of the classic indie sound of The Smiths, the go-betweens, the June Brides. So was yeah. that kind of music, were those kind of bands at all kind of entering sure. your orbit? Yeah, definitely. You know, um, like I said, my, my older sister and all of our friends, you know, they're, they're like all my friends, older brothers and stuff, were all into music. And what it was is they used to have an import section because the major labels didn't carry anything. So they would have an import section in the shop, what real indies are and stuff like that. And the thing is, is you know, um, besides, you know, Enemy and Sounds and Nelly Makers always taking the piss anyways, like, oh, this is the greatest thing. Oh, this is actually horrible. And we're going to knock it down to size next week. Anyway, um, the, the thing is, when you buy these records, they were like the equivalent of 50 quid now, basically. And you learn to like things about them. And there's no information and no way to return them. So I think people became uh, open-minded. And everything was was really lumped together. It's the same section that has Suicide and Advances is going to have GBH or whatever it is, right? Craft and every, everything, including Frog Rock, everything is all in one section, basically, you know, Soft Machine or whoever. Yes. It's like um, all that, that mumbo-jumbo, which is basically just counterculture yes. versus whatever the big thing in the world they were still pushing, but Led Zeppelin or whoever. It, it could be anybody onto like the Guns of Roses and all that stuff. But yeah, you know, the other thing that people don't really realize is uh, in, in, in California, you have the suburbs, right? You don't even have that in New York. So you think about, about the Ramones, what are they doing there? Trying to practice in somebody's bedroom? Or are they trying to practice in somebody's... Um, where are they even practicing, right? But in, in California, everybody's got a garage. So that's where garage music comes from. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you're in an urban environment... You, you can't even get that many people together. And this, there was more parties and more um, uh, uh, crazy music thing underground going. Yes. 
And and also during that period, you know, there were there was in the UK especially, and I'm sure there was a bit in America as well. But there was definitely a, a kind of the right and left. You know, there was the mainstream stuff, which had people like sure. the, that Trevor Horn production sound, the Frankie yeah. goes to the Hollywood, ABC. Sure. Then you had you know Duran Duran's band, the <laughs> the Buggles. That was a Trevor Horn classic. And and then you had the you know the really kind of like the wedding present and and all those kind yeah. of other bands where the production levels were really different. And when you, I know a couple of years ago if not 18 months ago David Bowie even though he was dead um, he had some of his 80s albums remixed by various producers uh-huh. to take out that really overproduced kind of cocaine dr- thing <laughs> <laughs> yes the drum sound that horrible kind of uh, you yeah, know yeah I hate it yes. hate it it was snare and all that. It was so overdone. So, so it was kind of in, but it was kind of at the same time. You also had a kind of something called the Red Wedge movement, which was kind of the whole socialist indie kids who wanted to sort of sure. kick over the government. So you, ha- you know, there were definitely two camps. And in that time, I guess you were starting to sort of get people like REM started to appear, and then the early years of some of those other bands like Steve Albini and and Big Black. So, and then you obviously had the, the hair metal stuff with Guns and Roses and Poison. Where we where. There's a whole different thing going on. See where I'm from? They, um, the only American band on Factory Records lived right down the street from me, the Absidarians. I mean, we were doing crazy stuff very early on. Lots of bands doing developmental uh, music on experimental music, you know, uh, mad stuff. The problem, the reason why you wouldn't know about it coming from the UK is because during the 80s, the third largest export from the uk was music the, the entertainment business so enemy and all these things had no use for american groups it's the exception the exception to the rule it really radically changed with nirvana i guess but they're basically exporting since beatles times their music you see what i mean they're not their their job isn't to like to import a bunch of american uh industry titans and suck up all the cash it's you know to create its own homegrown thing Yes, so. because when because because the one thing that sort of because most bands I've got I've sort of realised have got a bit of a five year narrative, especially in this country. They they kind yeah. of they get the single, you know, John Peel would play it. They get yeah. John Peel session that first album, the second album, a bit tricky. If any UK band ever toured America, that was kind of like they'd come home and often would say, and then we split up because it was just too much yeah. for, for any band to cope. So what was it? What is it about the the American tour that destroys every English band apart from, I don't know probably Robbie Williams or something. What is it about the American what? The, the American public that just grinds them up and spits them out? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the whole thing. Is You know, I used to hear people say, like, uh, um, something about, like, it can't be done. You simply can't go from London to um, Glasgow in the day. And we're like, every single concert that you basically play on a real tour in, yes. in America, it's, it's 10 to 14 hours to trips. So you're doing that every day. Every single one of your drives is that long. So it's like, and I think, you know, even when Oasis, uh, we we opened up for Oasis, the first two shows in America, it's like, oh, here's the big deal. It's, it's you know, Oasis is going to conquer America. And you're looking at an eight-show tour or less. For us, when we play America, you know, it's like 40 days or 50 days. There's so many days. I mean, we, we, we do, we do eight, 18 shows in Australia. So it's like for them just to go America where they've got like a bazillion cities with over 100,000 people in it. It's just very funny. It's the outlook. Yes. Yes. You know, it's different. 
the I think the Brits have got no stamina really. So um so as as the the one the other thing that was quite interesting is that around eighty seven a lot of those indie bands kind of they kind of started to grind to and hold and what whole and one of the reasons was there was the sort of ecstasy world and drugs the drugs had changed so everyone wanted to party and they wanted to listen to the Happy Mondays and Stone Roses and uh, uh, the Happy yeah Happy Monday Stone well, Roses. Well, to me it looked like it, to me it looked like there was going to be a, a almost like in in the way that the sixties worked there was going to be some sort of Generation X youth culture movement in the sense that the potentiality was there. If you if you look at the doors five to one, like, okay, we outnumber the counterculture, outnumbers the establishment, five kids to one square adult. Well, the baby boomers all had 2.5, so there was twice as many kids. See? Yeah. and, and they, but, they, but they were incredibly fragmented, I think. And, and I really noticed the way that um, MTV could have been more like a 60s um, uh, top 100 or top 40 radio where it cut across the genres where people didn't have a problem with black music switching to like the psych music to the um, Shirley Bassey big, you know, Goldfinger whatever, you know, it's just all going by but then they, they made it really fragmented like, okay, we can't listen to this now it's only new romantic, now it's only this uh, LA cock rock now it's only hip hop and they just did this. Now it's funk funk, you know, and, and these cycles, I thought, were always very strange. Yes, I know. There was, it's, it's a kind of a... It's a with word. the drugs, with the drugs, it just seemed like on multi-different levels, it just sort of, sort of tapped down their generation because it really, with the minute people started doing all the acid and the E, that seemed like, and the band, the band dancing, that seemed like the end of the party for yes. that whole decade. Well, it was it was definitely that, but then it was kind of eighty seven with that. I remember John Peel play started playing these kind of albums, kind of on um, sub pop called Sub Pop One Hundred and then Sub Pop Two Hundred, and that was where you sort of heard people like I suppose Mud Honey for the first time and Nirvana for the first time, and they brought out Bleach and they'd done a tour with Tad, and they'd sort yeah. of come round and toured, and and that kind of felt like things had changed because also Sonic Youth had moved over to a kind of a major record label as well, so that that started to get a lot more publicity. And, and sort of the, the sound of the Smiths and that kind of slightly, not fae, but, you know, that, that sound had slightly had its day, I suppose, after five years, people were looking for the next well, thing. Well, it's, it's just really hard to fathom uh, that Sonic was on the radio as much as some of those bands, like the way that on, on the, the, the big... Um, I mean, the, I mean, the big sort of rock of... I mean, the big, uh, what would I call it? The monsters type... Uh, radio stations like in, in Los Angeles they had Carol Q and I guess it's called Live 105 it's a sister station whatever in San Francisco and they, they would have the same company um, in uh, New York or whatever in Boston and, and the way that those guys approached like uh, Stone Roses when that came out and and, and uh, some of these bands I mean in the Smiths I mean it was quite big it was quite big yes. they, they, they applied I mean it was it was just, it was like they approached it the same way as Depeche Mode, except Depeche Mode was massive. You know, they did a they sold out the Rose Bowl, a hundred thousand people. I mean, without a manipulate without manipulating it. Yes, well, I, I know. Depeche, I, Depeche Mode was much bigger than Oasis. 
very big. Yeah, like so. I, I, I don't think anybody knows how big that band is internationally. It's well, just ridiculous. Well, it's interesting because quite a few people who are on the Moot record label had to thank mm. you know, Depeche Mode for keeping everything yeah. going because they just they would just put an album out. It would sell millions. They do a tour. It sell million, you know, sell millions of tickets. Yeah. The merchandise. And it, it allowed everything else to happen. It allowed everything. Everybody in that record label just went, well, our jobs are safe for the, as long as cool. uh, Depeche Mode keep rocking. So when the turn of the decade, the 90s hit and you brought out, started to form, you know, the band, the mm -hmm. Brian Jonestown Massacre, did that come together relatively smoothly? I mean, did did the sort of pieces fall into place? No, not really. Um, you know, I could never find a band that would have me that I wanted to be in. Even when I was like, a, you know, we were making bands when, I, when we were teenagers and it would always be this situation, like you get the people that get along together that have no ability to really write good songs or tell the difference. There's all these different things going on, I think, with artistry sometimes in a group activity where it's like, it's fun to play, but maybe that isn't the only goal, just having fun. And like, I don't care how much fun you're having, like, go have fun by yourself. I want to actually write music kind of thing. You know, there's this weird uh, fine line between all that stuff, you know? Yes. Um, do you want to oh, have a well-adjusted democracy or do you want to have crazy good art? <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know. But uh, so it was just very difficult, I think, finding people who um, who wanted to just, they could see the big picture, you know? Well, it was really hard and uh and I continuously got blamed for a lot of that stuff because there was nobody, there was there wasn't really a lot of point of ref, references that you could use and say that this is really what we are. Yes, absolutely. And did in you... the way in the way bands now they they pull out a um, Psycho Candy record and they go, well, we're going to become this, and they do it all the time. See what I'm saying? They're yeah. like, no, we got the leather jackets, we got the sunglasses, and we got the distortion pedals. We're going to be these guys. You know, and lots of bands have done that, and they do it. They do it with my band all the time. You know, they're like, "Oh, we got a tambourine player, cool, and the, and the backwards name. This is great. We're playing. I know how to play these two chords, which, um, you know, uh, I was just interested in specifically um, using just the nuts and bolts old equipment. I mean, not. Um, having everything come from a pedal or, or covered up in, in some kind of crazy effects and just making up music. So it wasn't, the focus wasn't that it was retro. It was just being played on some retro gear because nobody was interested in that stuff. Yes, you know? absolutely. And also, I mean, during that time and, and sort of having sort of bizarrely done an interview with John Drumbo French, who was the Captain Beefheart drummer, and, and then sort of member like, oh, yes, and Paul Hanley, who was also the drummer with the fall. I mean, both of those people talked about their kind of uh, Marky Smith and, and the good captain. I mean, did you sort of feel like you were on a mission yourself on, on sort of wanting to create some, you know, a, a G, you know, some sort of amazing new sound? Well, you know, there's a lot of different things, but they're all rolled up. You know, that I thought about a lot of things very consciously. And one that, you know, on a subversive level, I thought that uh, uh, having a totally free, well-known musical group was a great way to have a, a clean channel of communication in authoritarian times. Like, if you could just keep that open, it would be interesting to do that, I thought. And I also thought that, the way that people always fall for the same sort of um, 
business industry lies about we're going to make you famous and blah, blah, blah. And it's, it, it's always the same thing. You know, like all my tears just got sent through the ringers, you know, and um, you make a little bit of money and they, you don't own your music anymore, you know, and then they're not making the payments on the house and the band breaks up. Yes. You know, and I just thought it would be, I, I just knew that it would be, um, if I just said no to all that, that I would probably end up in the long run be more successful than everybody who said yes, besides the megastar type people. Yeah. You know what I mean? I wasn't gonna like clean up like Ed Sheeran, but I knew by just saying no that I would do perfectly well because everybody can't wait to like hook, line, and sinker jump in the same way as Creedence Clearwater Revival. I mean, how many number one hits did those guys have? And then they get sued because they sound like CCR because of the contract. You know, like we own the way you sound. Yes, you know, um, the- madness. I know, and and quite a lot of the people I've interviewed, the the they've really got stuck on publishing. Their their sort of ownership of their music and art is something that um, they didn't quite take seriously. Well, not seriously, but they didn't understand that kind of business side of it. But well, they, I do. I I own all my publishing, so I've understood it quite quite well. I mean, I, you know, like, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't want to start bragging numbers, but more, you know, like I got. I've made more money off of Boardwalk Empire than I'm going to tell you more than 99.9 people percent of even any band you can think of ever got for a record deal. <laughs> you know, it's just, and I just happen to owe it, own the recording, yes. you know, but know. Um, whatever. I think, um, I think it was Bauhaus kept the ownership to Bella Lugosi, which I think was a good move. It obviously sort of paid a few bills. So that... sometimes, it's real, sometimes it's quite odd, you know, because you've got Lee Mavers who just signed a publishing deal where they insisted, no, all we want is there she goes. And that's the only one they own. But boy, man, that's been everywhere. Big, <laughs> you know? Yes, that is, that is, well, yeah. I mean, it's kind of one of those bands, isn't it? It's always tricky to the thing, you know, I love the band, but then you think, God, I can't remember any of the other songs, which is kind of embarrassing to admit. But look, during the 90s, though, you were on some creative zeitgeist because you just were bringing out album after album. And there's a few artists like them. I still am. You still, I know you still are. So what, so the 90s, though, but, you know, was definitely a period where, a bit like a lot of bands who who are sort of doing that creative zeitgeist, like the Beatles, the yeah. Stones, and the Smiths. I mean, it was just like well, there 24... was a method to my madness, though. And, and what it was is I was arguing with these labels, saying I'm going to put in my will that you can never buy this record from my descendants. So you need to do exactly what I say, which is give me a studio and creative control, and then we'll start putting out these records with you. Otherwise, this is the sound of money going down the drain because you're not getting it. So I knew where these records would be floating. Like it didn't matter to me that it wasn't on Warner Brothers um, moving a hundred thousand units out the door. I, I knew it was safe forever, and it was getting out there, and some people would find it and talk about it. And I was building brand and all that stuff. See, so I knew that it was like, okay, well, I'm just going to keep signing it until you know it brought the conversation. When once I um, once I figured out my own rhetoric. Um, and got that strong then I got exactly what I wanted because they weren't interested in giving me anything but once I said that I'm the producer and I, which is all, all of those responsibilities fall under that 
Yes. That was in, that's when I got, that's when I got what I wanted. But so yeah, I put out six records in basically the year, just going, okay, well you're never going to get this one out, and I'm going to start recording another one. <laughs> better figure out, you know. So it was a game I was playing. You know? Yes, but one that you were winning kind of quite well, maneuvering well. Yeah, and 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 it is interesting because you know, like in the movie and all this other stuff, they're like, oh blah blah blah. He but he's wrecked every single deal. But none of those companies exist as they did. And none of those people are employed as they were. And the whole music industry, nobody owns that music as they once did. Now it's just streaming. Yes. So it's like, you know, I didn't actually wreck anything. It was, it's fine. I still have everything. I sell records and, you know, and all the things that you're supposed to be doing. Yes, absolutely. And when you were sort of on, on one of the... It was your third, I think it was your third album. Thank God for, for mental illness. Can you remember, you know, that period, you know, and, and the sort of yeah. bringing that together? Because that was, that was, again, kind of quite, quite the lo-fi kind of experience, but it was also on an incredible budget as well. Yeah, well, the, the concept, you know, when you're writing things, um, sooner or later they, it becomes apparent to you ways that they could form groups and then the way that they associate so, you know, sometimes when you're recording a prog record, you like, oh, if I just wrote this acoustic song, it would be, you know, so you have a, you know, moody intro, you have a do all these things. But anyways, when when you're writing a lot of songs like I do when I get going, um, I go through the process of finishing the idea just so I can remember it. It doesn't matter if I don't want to be... I, it, it, you know, like, for instance, if all of a sudden I get an idea for a country song, it doesn't matter if um, my record that I'm making is disco right now. I'll still finish writing that song just to keep everything flowing. And then at a certain point, you end up with that many songs in different genres that I could just go, OK, well, these will all be acoustic songs. Right. Yes. Because I often think with artists, you do mm-hmm. have to, you know, like to, to, to sort of make that kind of moment to think this is what I'm doing. It is almost like that, um, you know, because I was obsessed with David Bowie and sort of yeah. I realised that in the 70s he brought out like an album each year and he, he produced yeah. various ones and re- wrote records for other people. But he also made the Low album, which at the time, you know, like must have been like... That's so, crazy, yeah. Which was must have been such a shocker for every everybody, even the fans and, and, and journalists from the NME, like Charles Shaw Murray, who just absolutely damned it and now has to say, no, it was a piece of genius. I didn't really understand it. That's why I'm a rock writer. Did you, did you also feel that, you know, tr- getting people to sort of understand what you were trying to do was frustrating? Uh, absolutely, but, you know, that doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I absolutely understood that, that it was very difficult to get anybody on any level to understand what I was up to. I had people in my band going, oh, we're absolutely, we're homeless and starving right now because you're fucking around with um, record companies, you know? We could, be, we could be screwing supermodels, but I live on a couch because you refuse to sign a record deal with these people. So there was a lot of that, you know? And um, really... The level of hostility, like physical altercations, you know, yes. there's a lot of that, that kind of stuff. Because um, I, I, I don't, I, I don't really view the world that way. Towards somebody's like, oh yeah, like I'm wrecking somebody else's life. It's like, no, actually, I, I'm the guy who's recording and writing whole albums that could take us around the world. You're doing nothing. You're complaining about because you don't understand, you know, or something. But um, so there was that, you yes. know. Um, and did that, and, and, 
And did you need that kind of creative um, kind of spark or that kind of creative tension? You know, did that sort of also help fuel the the kind of... Well, just the reality, you know, you have to understand from the very beginning when people... I, at first, I tried to shield myself and I would, didn't want everybody to know that I played all the instruments, wrote all this stuff and was in the process of teaching myself to produce and all that shit because it was, it was you know, at first I was like, okay, well, you know, do people need to know that I play 80 instruments so that I can basically figure out how to play anything? No. And I also knew that they sort of, I don't like that look. I, I know that they, the record companies and the publishers, they, 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 they try and figure out who's the principal writer anyways, because if in a percentage deal, uh, 50% of or 20% of one guy is a larger percentage and we split it all six ways. And then I get my 20%. So they automatically go, well, the drummer didn't write the song. So he's out as far as writing. So, Anyways, so I used to just put list everything as the band, you know. But um, um, and now I don't really care, you know. The the issue really was uh, um, just I'm I'm interested in music, you know. Yeah. Just being creative and trying to to make ideas. And did you? I mean, did you feel at times people were trying to sort of. Would would almost like prefer you to be dead rather than you know so they could write that oh my god I loved him and and you know I wished I wish I got to sort of record with him again because there is a kind of a weird thing that happens isn't there with kind of creative people and yeah yeah well um, I can't speculate about all that stuff but I just know that a lot of people sort of um, wrote me off continuously thinking like oh this that or the other and they they're, they're going to make up whatever history or reality whether it's like uh, lyrics for the cocktail twins or whatever you know people just make up stuff that they, they imagine as far as what your life's about you know yes um, or how well one, one artist is doing over another artist I always that always cracks me up because we're so under the radar but people have no idea you know and it's such a strange place to be if you're in the like 3,000 to 5,000 seater every night around the world it's still a nothing place to be, you know? It's so weird, but it means nothing to the industry, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's, and not, it's, not, it's not particularly giant, you know? No, absolutely. And did you, I mean, because you, you kind of formed or set up the record label A Records, which was, mm, you know, 15, 16 years ago. I mean, did you, did you at times sort of look at the you know, world of Prince and people like that who, who were always struggling with sort of ownership and record labels and think, actually, no, we just need well, to do I it know, ourselves? Yeah, there's, there's that, you know, people were very much, I, I started to, to explain to you, people were like, oh my God, you're like the next Kurt Cobain. Uh, you, we want you to give us 50% of your money for all time. You can record in this studio. We'll give you this flat to live in and all that. You know, and it was really predatory and manipulative. And um, there's no way you could understand the implications if, if you're in a lawyer's office with management people and they are presenting deals like that to you. What's the implications of 50% of all, your money from every resource from all time? I mean, what, what kind of, you know... Especially if somebody was like a junkie, but let's just say you're just um, a 20 year old that hasn't been to business school. <laughs> you know, it's, it's some heady, heady figures, right? Yes, absolutely. And, you, and even the micromanagement of something like that, the account, accounting of that. Like, who's going who's gonna to do the accounting for all time? And who's going to do the tax for all time? Okay. Am I, am I, yeah, exactly. So. 
It's a tricky Whatever. one. And did you, yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, as we all get older, you know, our health, you know, we have issues with lots of things with whether it's our cat or with our parents and our own health. I mean, did you sort of find yourself sort of having to sort of take a sort of deep breath and sort of get things kind of tidied up and cleaned up? You mean as far as my, my own being a, a lunatic and all that stuff? Yes. You mean, like, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... With the, with the opiates, you know, I, I I've gotten a lot a lot of money from the music industry, and it was never my goal to um, get addicted to them. But I, you know, I had an accident early on in the group, and um, uh, they had to do some complex surgery because I had a compound fracture. So, anyways, after having a taste of that, you know, I had a bunch of money. So I was only doing that stuff for like two years, you know, and to to quit the the dope. You know, living in the Hollywood Hills, I started drinking, and that took a little bit longer to get knocked out on the head. But, um, you know, it was never my goal to sort of be Sid Vicious. No, that you know, that would not be a good goal at all. Because I know I've always been interested, and I always find Lemmy from Motorhead kind of amusing and interesting. And he's always he was always really you know happy with most drugs and speed, especially. But he really hated heroin because he said he lost so many friends through it. So I was always impressed how Lemmy managed to survive until sort of I think two thousand and sixteen. So it was yeah. So I just wondered uh, with yourself, you know how you manage to sometimes dodge all those kind of pitfall, pitfalls that sort of often get sort of sprung in front of you. Well, I, you know, the interesting thing is like, without going down those um, detours, you know, getting lost or all that stuff in your life, you still, I, I still feel like I have nowhere enough time to accomplish all the things I'd like to do. Yes. You know? But when did sometimes, that... sometimes, sometimes, like even right now, I think about is this an appropriate time to just stop doing this? Just uh, because, yeah, I, I remember before my my dad uh, passed away and all that stuff. I remember looking at him and telling him, "Boy, you only got twenty more years of walking around doing whatever you want with your body," you know. Yeah, I remember looking. You know what I mean? Like basically, if you want to go climb that hill, you want to go. You're going to be able to do it, right? In your fifties, you. In your seventies, uh, maybe, right? So, I, so sometimes I think about that as like, well, do I really want to talk the next twenty years of playing music? But I don't know. I enjoy it. So, well, absolutely. And when did you move to? Ber- and when did you sort of make the move to Berlin? Uh, around two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Yes. And was that a very? I mean, did you do a bit of a David Bowie on that and think I need to get out to Hollywood Hills? And- <sighs> Well, you know, everybody's in denial, and I think uh, 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 there's this whole liberal thing. You know, the people are using this whole uh, anti-Semitism and stuff as a weapon, right? But there is a, there's this type of liberal uh, who who thinks that they're not going to call uh, this modern authoritarianism uh, uh, march towards fascism fascism because it will um, belittle the Holocaust, you know, that it will cheapen that somehow. But I saw a lot of this stuff coming, and we're definitely it's not it's not just u k with brexit brexit and nationalism or the trump thing it's it's everywhere you know, so I just knew that, that publicly that that's a no no here you know as far as how crazy the police and the you know with the armed police and all that stuff in America, how crazy that stuff is it's, you know I don't need to see tanks driving down the street and all that stuff. 
Yes. Because I remember, sort of, you know. I remember sort of bizarrely, in, it was 87, I went to Berlin to see, you know, to see some friends. But also that was when it was celebrating its 600th anniversary and David Bowie was playing at the wall and it was all very exciting. But then I'd sort of got a bit of a history of Berlin and, and people were saying that a reason there were so many kind of, I suppose, alternative types is that there was... Um, Yes, national service. But if you went to Berlin, you could avoid national service. So anybody in Germany who was a little bit you know, on the left probably and a bit alternative and punky and indie just went, right, I'm going to go and live in Berlin. So it did a sort of a kind of bring together. An at, awful the very end, at the very end, they actually sued. Maybe it wasn't the very end the last couple of years, though. They let um, the people in Berlin were able to get mohawks or long hair <laughs> to be in German service. So Professor Longhair, yeah, all these big guys here. Right. You know, they're like, no, no, no. If you're going to make me serve, I get to have whatever hair I want. (laughs) Yes. And then last year, you, well, I think, no, it was two years ago, you brought an album out, which was titled, um, yes, it was self-titled. It was last year, wasn't it? Yeah. And did, and did that sort of feel kind of still as exciting as ever? Well... You know, it's hard to describe to people that aren't in the creative um, fields or maybe uh, athleticism or something like, you know, like a a sport hero or somebody who's of note. Um, But you only feel really excited when you're completing something for it. Gosh, it only lasts like 15 minutes. You might show people the next day or something. You might listen to it once or twice. You know, you tend to listen to it more when you're mixing and putting, assembling a record together. But once you're done with that accomplishment, it's over. It's on to the next thing. It's the the definition of not resting on your laurels. Is, you know, um, the laurels are made out of this plant matter that just turns to dust. So like only Caesar has gold laurels. So you, you immediately back on your, to create the next thing. It's like, I don't have any stashes of songs that never made the grade you know like when you when you hear you know when you hear when you you're waiting for years and it's for stone roses to put on another recording right and then they put on this like little record right and it turns out those are always the songs that are left over from the first when they didn't get used you know that the record company owns and it's the same with the strokes that anybody you know yes. tim and paula all these people you just see this like Right, but yes. I I don't I don't have any leftover songs. I have to so force myself to write somehow. Yes, you know? and the track on it, we never had a chance. Mm-hmm. How did what was the inspiration for that particular tra- you know, number? Well, you know, uh, I I I over the course of you know my life and the year or a day, I mean, I have a full spectrum of human emotions, so I don't necessarily have to go all the way down a road meaning my life doesn't have to be destroyed all the time to uh have the real feelings the content the sincerity or the trigger you know like the tragedy or whatever but um you know so i could do i just start getting in the mode and i can tap into anything it could have been uh, it could have been a bad breakup 29 years ago it doesn't matter Yes. Yes. 
Because I mean, because because I suppose I have to confess, one of my my my, my favourite emotional state is romantic melancholia. So there was there was quite a few songs on here which taps into yeah, that. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> yes, romantic melancholia. I think it goes back to Burt Bacharach, and then if you like, you know, and the, the work. Yeah, of, I love him. The one work. of my favourite songs of all time is "Look of Love." So I mean, yes, one of my since I was a baby, that's been a fave. So. The look of love, and 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 I always thought that if you like Burt Backrack, the Carpenters, you're definitely going to like Joy Division and, and the Smiths, because frankly, yeah. we 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 deal with those emotional states, which is always kind of like both beautiful and tragic at the same time, in a nice way, you know. Because because again, you know, you've got another track, Too Sad to Tell, to tell you. I mean, is that another one that you, you know is is kind of just part of you, which could be from any part of your life? But I just said to tell you. Yes. Uh, well, you know, I was thinking when I when I was working on that, uh, you know, uh, quite often I'll do two or three records at once. Like I said, I don't like to get in, in the way of the flow. I don't have to decide what song goes on what. I just keep pumping them out, and then I, when I when I get like forty five songs or something, then I go, "That's enough for now," and I don't attempt to track anymore. But um, sometimes I sometimes. Um, you know, I can write from titles. Or if I if I think of any titles, or if I see anything catches my eye, I'll definitely write it down, jot it down, because uh, all roads lead to Rome when you're writing songs. So that the the song was triggered from Bon Jassa Utter, Jan Bass Utter. Yeah, he's a he's a performance artist. I guess he's from Rotterdam or one of those places originally, but he's in California. And um, he used to do stuff like ride his bike off the walk into the canals or ride his bike off the top of the roof from his house, you know, <laughs> fall off the roof, two stories. But ultimately, you know, he was, he was a professor at UC Irvine and he um, took a dinghy um, and he was going to go from Newfoundland all the way to, Ireland, uh, to, I guess, the Netherlands. <laughs> and it was not even the size of your city. I mean, this was like, very small, as big as your bathtub. Wow. They found it later. He was dead, but they have never found him. Oh dear! But one of his one of his pieces, he he does a lot of pieces where one he's like arranging a floral arrangement, and you can't even see how all the colors are changing. They doing it in front of your eyes. Another one, he just busts into tears. It's just a, a film study of him crying. It's quite famous because most actors and actresses try and pull that one off now since he's done he did it in 72 but it's it's it's, it's, it's just a case study of somebody's face crying yes what was it actually i just missed his name what was his name again uh jan bass adder god i need to write that in youtube it's great look him up j-a-n-d-a-s-a-d-e-r jan bass adder Excellent. Okay. Well, that's great. Look, just one last question. What what would you say to an eighteen year old self starting out in that kind of the interest in and sometimes murky world that is kind of the creative arts and music? Well, um, for right now, because you can't ever go backwards. No, but I I suppose what what sort of wisdom that you've picked up over the decades? Because because you know you've gathered. Well, I just I just think now more than ever you have to just set your mind for what you want to do and do it. You know because. uh, the lowest common denominator isn't going to get you what you need. I mean, everybody has the same dream, right? They're like the, the 3.5 million Syrian refugees. They need money and they want to feel safe, right? 
<laughs> and that's why I think, um, and I guess a lot of people in, in the UK and um, America all have this dream, but they don't want to do nothing to have lots of money. <laughs> but um, I just think you gotta you gotta be severe, severe and persevere. You know, that's my only advice. Yes. So, but the weird thing about it is, you know, um, I, I try and tell people that, like, if you're, um, if you're, um, it doesn't matter how how great you are at um, rowing a boat. If if you can't bail water faster than the water's coming in, you're probably going to sink. So you need to sometimes you need to you have, have to have an honest assessment of what's going on. You have to be like really, uh, uh, you know accurate you know realistic yeah and then then the other thing is is you need to be working on what's appropriate for that <laughs> that needs to be done like sometimes you know i think would would you say you're one of the the rock's great survivors well i don't know because rats eat their own tails and legs and shit and they survive i think quality of life is it's a good thing, but you know, I want to. I wanted to enter the, the the lexicon for being known that I could just do that. Um, I could give myself permission to just do what I want. You see, yeah, like like I didn't. I didn't need permission to uh, somebody from some label to say like, um, oh yeah, I I guess I hear a hit. You could do this because what does it mean to even mean? And it's all cooked in fake anyways you know everything's rigged anyways so it's like yeah yeah <laughs> that's good anyway look anton i mean there's a lot of things like I, I, we live in an interesting world like everybody's gonna go oh this is billy Eilish, so it's gonna be the, somebody else's name next week right and you're and everybody in the world can tell me they like it but you know um I know a lot about music, right? <laughs> so I know what's there and what isn't there in music, and I know how it's all made. So I'm like, okay, so you could, everybody in the world can like something, right? It doesn't mean the, the uh, you know, I'm just interested in things that aren't um, like the disposable nature of urban contemporary culture is underwhelming, you know? Yes. I just want to make music that makes me happy. And that, and that I, I'm, I'm sort of gathering is what you do. Yeah. And that was me in conversation with Anton Newcomb from the Brian Jonestown massacre. If you want to contact me for some random reason, or make it nice and positive in this day and age, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. Um, and also all these interviews have been archived, so you can find those Again, at C86 Show. And that's on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. So just go check them out. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.